2: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I should say, uh hosts, but also Realtors with Oakland Realty in downtown Vancouver. Right. And uh, we've got a phenomenal episode today. We've got Andrew Liss. He is the director of economics and data analytics at the Real
3: Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, friend of the show, Pascal. Pas-
2: Fan favorite. Fan favorite.
3: When he left, you said, man, is the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver lucky to have Andrew List?" I did say that. Yeah. I feel like this is the guy who we we
2: joked about this after he left, not not disparagingly, more like um, just just the type of guy he is. He's the type of guy where it's like he's never met a problem. Like he'll he doesn't, die, he'll he die doesn't, trying to solve it. He doesn't right? need
3: like, to, under, he needs to understand it Yeah, and, and yeah, he'll do whatever it takes. Whatever I feel takes. like if this was... Back when, you know, we were kids, you'd be like, oh, what's that on your basement floor? it's like, oh, that's a Commodore 64 in a thousand pieces. Right. I understand exactly how that's made and I can put it back together. Yeah. Uh, That's Andrew Liss.
2: Yeah. Meanwhile, we were the kids that would just take the <laughs> take the game out and blow into it and put it back in yeah. and to pull the plug out. But yeah, he he would have been the guy who was like, "I gotta fix this. I gotta understand it. I got every every part of every yeah. remote and it's control like, car." And
3: it's it's a physical take of them apart, which he talks about. But it's yeah. also kind of theoretical, right? He's definitely a, a guy that is into solving problems. And it's also like when it's funny, but spoiler alert on the
2: five wire. It's like, what is your favorite book? And he's like. Technical manuals on like, <laughs> like HVAC, like just a, like something. Like, yeah, it's like he sits there. He's like, I got to understand this. But who better to have? Kind of you know confronting the problems in the real estate market yeah. and or, pouring or, or just, over the data, or pouring over the data, trying
3: to make sense of it. Um, bringing bringing new perspectives to the data, I think that's like a a big part of his goal. Totally, and and also not only bringing new perspectives, but his perspective, I think, is a unique one. So yeah, it's great having Andrew back on the show. One thing I will say as kind of a teaser, we talked to him right before the October stats came out, like literally a day or two before. Uh, so this is very current. But two things that were really exciting. One, his 2024 forecast. Yes. His 2024 housing forecast. I think we're the first to get it. We are the first to get it this week on V Rep only. And second of all, this harkens back to Brendan Lacerda from Moody's. Yeah, but don't spoil what it is. Okay, but so it's a Brent- key driver. Brendan Lacerda, if anyone remembers, he's been on the show a few times from the States. Talked a lot about employment as being the the thing to watch. You always watch employment and how it relates to the real estate market. Andrew, some markets that's true. Sure, Andrew's got a different component that he talks about that's really kind of insightful and interesting, specific
2: to our region. And man, is it like when I that was the one thing that for two or three days after this conversation, I was thinking about because. Yeah, I'm not even, I won't even get into it, but we almost overthink and overcomplicate this market sometimes. But he was just so, he he drills down so much on this one thing.
3: What is the one thing that's driving the market? And that and really everybody said. should be watching. Exactly. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, before that, Adam, we are in November Chilly it, out there. It it feels like it's actually remarkably warm. <laughs> it's about yeah, ten above. Uh, this I was this morning. Oh, like, you were talking about the market. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, it, it it feels like Groundhog Day in a, in a lot of ways. It feels yeah like every yeah exactly. It's we've been des- describing it as
2: purgatory in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. It's like this. It's this. Uh, I also it, you're saying Groundhog Day in connection to like it feels a lot like November of last year. Yeah, I I feel like you're Bill Murray. Yeah. I just wanna I'm gonna like punch the market in the face because <laughs> I it doesn't matter. I'll just wake up and <laughs> tomorrow <what's> a <laughs> next November will be the same. No, they won't remember me. Uh, but anyways, here's the thing. Uh, November Boy. is uh, November of this year feels a lot like November of last year. The market is really soft. Yeah. Kind of across the board. Yeah. And and here's the thing, here's what I will say. Last November was the buying opportunity in the past twenty-four months. Maybe, maybe longer, right? Yeah. People that bought in November, they wouldn't get that deal again. They definitely wouldn't get it in the spring. I don't even think they... they, And they wouldn't get it now. They wouldn't get it now. No, they wouldn't get it now. You're still up. And so this is what I still... I, I feel like right now, if you're smart and you are in a position to afford what you're buying and you're ready to go you can get a real sweet deal out there right now. Yeah. Um, That's, that's absolutely true. Who knows if the spring or like last year. So just to play out what happened this year is there was a renewed sense of optimism in the market in January of this year. Market really starts to take off around March. Call it right. Yeah. Fair enough. Robust Um, spring market. Pre-sale kind of starts to pick up a few months after that, uh, maybe June of this year. And we start to see more, more properties transacting just across the board. And then we see a bit of a run and now we've seen this kind of cool down. I would say it's kind of market kind of dropped off at the second interest rate increase, uh,
3: the last rate hike. Well, here's the thing, right? So what feels similar in, in a lot of ways, maybe thinking about how it plays out in early 2024 is I feel like most people now, the consensus is we're at peak rate uh right. environment right so whether there's another pause uh at the end of the year who knows but last spring it was that paused environment that led to increased activity increased optimism and the market kind of really you know it was it was stronger in than a lot of people expected in the spring couple differences though we're, you know, you said purgatory. We're kind of two years into this uh, prolonged purgatory, and when when I say that, I mean like it's like the recession that has not shown. No, up, and right? but so I guess the three things are: a, the recession does seem to to be here. Yes, uh, that's at least the feel out on the street right now. Two renewals. Okay, so a lot of people that were locked into really low rates over the last couple of years and have been sort of watching from the sidelines as rates went up. What does that do to inventory in 2024? I think that's kind of a a crucial thing. And I think that, you know, there's also people that have been dealing with those higher rates and being squeezed. And what does that do? And one thing, you know, there's just some bad news out there. Like true or not, we're in an environment where people are talking about large developers going under, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not saying whether it's true. I'm saying the, the feel out there means that that could easily be true. <laughs> well, we are living in like the
2: thickest cloud of a rumor of a developer going bankrupt in, in Vancouver, major developer. And I mean, whether it's true or not, I mean, that's what everybody's talking about. But it, it seems to be on everybody's mind that there's this like, it, it has switched to, is it here? Is the recourse here? Is that is yeah, that yeah, that's
3: safe. exactly what I'm saying. So that's like the difference for the early twenty twenty four in my mind is like the the effects of the aggressive rate hikes over the last couple of years. it seems like it's coming home to roost now and it didn't necessarily it felt like that last November, but now it feels much more acute. So I wonder how that plays out in the spring. But I guess we'll wait and see yeah and and just uh, from
2: our perspective, we hope the rumor's not true and uh, we need everybody building housing.
3: yeah, I, I don't think that benefits anyone. Exactly. And Matt, we should say that today's episode
2: is sponsored by Scalina Real Estate, our real estate company in Vancouver. and we've got a brand new listing up on the Vancouver real estate Podcast, uh, com site, which is super exciting. This is one at Strathcona Village. What's the what's the property, man? Should I give you the deets? The deets on this one the uh, is uh,
1: you,
2: you're oh. like you sound like you're here. bring the deets up, but but first, can I like you're like the fawns or something? You're like uh. By the way, are, have you watched Sly? I'm, I'm in the I'm in it right okay. now. Okay, I'm, I'm I deep in it. I it's started, not as good as Arnold.
3: No, the Arnold one is 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 substantially phenomenal. better. But the Sly one, what struck me uh so far was. Henry Winkler. Yeah. I mean, everybody now knows as an older guy, like Henry Winkler is the nicest guy on the planet, yeah. yada, yada, yada. But a he's, bad boy. It's so bizarre how he kind of really, the fawns and all the rest, that he was able to kind of channel this this bad boy persona in a way that doesn't match his personality You at know all. what also
2: is that, this is kind of a weird thing to say, but I was thinking about it last night when I was watching it. Once you know old Henry Winkler, it's hard to take <laughs> oh, yeah. young Henry Winkler seriously, yeah, yeah. right? It's like all you see is the is the nice older man in that leather jacket.
3: <laughs> exactly. So anyway, new listing at Scalina Real Estate and it's also at com where we're featuring all of our listings now. six zero five nine eight three east Hastings. This is... Our a corner unit at Strathcona Village. I yes. love this building. Concrete 2018, Tank. two bed, two bath, 750 odd square feet. The value here is undeniable. I think it's the best value in East Vancouver right now. Views for days. There's nothing not to like about this unit. It's at Vancouver Check it out. And while you're there, hit that cell with us because we have the soul plan.
2: Yeah, the soul plan. It's the it's the fawns of our documents that we've <laughs> released its uh, it's the most hey. downloaded document that we have. This is a step-by-step guide to how to sell your property for top dollar in the shortest amount of time. And literally, it's it's like, it's so step-by- it's so basic. It's like, it's it sold stands for start on launch date. You pick the launch date, it gives you a two week step-by-step program to get the place ready. And that's what it is. It's available at our site. Just click sell with us. If you're in the industry and you want to copy uh, you just want to look, get some ideas. We're happy to share it with everybody. Just head over to com. It's an instant download.
3: Click sell with us. And Adam, just to be clear, it's basic in that it's super easy to follow along, but it's based on years and years of selling hundreds of homes. I didn't want to, yeah, I don't want
2: to simplify it too much, but it's, it's a pretty straightforward document. It's a real basic document. All right.
3: <laughs> anyway, let's cut to our talk with Andrew Liss. This is a fantastic one.
2: Yeah, I love this conversation. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds. Sonehouse offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at Marcon.ca slash Sonhouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at Marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at Marconhomes. Markon, Building for Life. Okay, so we're here with Andrew Liss. He is the Director of Economics and Data Analytics at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. REBGV. That's right.
4: And uh, past guest fan favorite. Thanks for coming back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nice to know it's a fan favorite. I was honestly a bit worried after the last time. I left (laughs) a little too depressing (laughs) of a note. I was losing sleep over it. Like, yeah, they're (laughs) never going to invite me back on that show. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to to be back in the seat and uh, happy to see you guys again.
3: Yeah, Andrew, maybe for a start for people who who missed you last time on the show, uh can you start by telling our guests a little or our listeners, I should say, a little bit about yourself?
4: Sure. Yeah, so like like you said I'm a director of economics and data analytics at the at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Big mouthful. What uh it's kind of an interesting role. Do a couple things. Uh so one side is an economics fo- focused lens of things where, you know, I try to make sense of our real estate market and the economy and things and present these data and facts and stories in ways that are kind of interesting to our members and, uh, and the public as well. So we have a big, you know, public part of the job where we go out and go and I talk on the news and stuff about our monthly stats and whatever, and get out there, get the message out about what's happening in the market. So that's one facet of the job. And I guess that's mostly the part that brings me here, but there's a, there's a big hidden side to my job, which is, uh, working on the inside of the org and developing our data and our products and tools so that we can do more with it and bring more products and tools down the road, which is you know i, I got to say it's a very slow and difficult process like it's <laughs> not easy it's, it's it involves organizational change it involves like setting up technical aspects databases all these things it's very you know it's really not sexy until it is sexy <laughs> like right, when yeah, you see yeah. a product at the end of the day oh wow that's really cool yeah but it's took years or whatever to get there you know but we're going to get there i'm determined there's no way that this is going to like any kind of <laughs> stumbling blocks going to be in my in my way for this and uh, i have a vision of what i think we can what we can do there so uh, I'm excited about you know what we're going to bring down the pipe for members and stuff eventually. And are the are the files like just is is everything a lot better
2: as of about 30 years ago? Like when did everything like I I feel like our stats go back what about thir- like the board stats? About 30 years in the yeah. 70s, I think?
4: Yeah, so, so well... It's more no, than no sorry. Than yeah, sorry. I think it was sorry, ni- sorry.
3: 1920? Yeah, <laughs> yeah 30, well, years. 30 years ago, right? <laughs> 1932.
2: So, no, in, in, yeah, the what late 90s or mid 90s?
4: Yeah, so officially the stuff that we publish for the most part, like, well, yeah, I think we publish data that goes back to the 1990s. I definitely can see it in the, on the internal side, but there's so, a secret about the board. I don't know if people know. I didn't know this until I worked there. And it's very cool. So the board has a, well, I think it's cool. (laughs) There's a secret kind of basement compartment to the board. And we have all of these crazy like old stats. Like we have the original MLS books right? That like, you know, you would... Oh, so it's like the archive. The the, the, the archive. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not really digitized yet entirely, though. We've got some parts of that digitized. And as one of the things that I'd like to do down the road when I find some actual time, this is a very difficult and technical project, is digitizing this, taking... So we might be able to go back even further in the stats than we have, which I think would just be an absolutely fascinating journey because we in Canada don't have many resources of data on housing that goes back that far, but, you know, the process of actually digitizing that and making it something accessible, machine readable, therefore usable in some kind of analysis or something is, that's a big undertaking.
3: Right. Need
4: some interns? Yeah. Well, we've thought about that. We did have some people uh, that came and tried to do some work, but you know, this is pretty dry work, and and interns stick around. (laughs) But you know, I was thinking about it the other day, and I was like, "Well, you know what? We have today that we didn't have ten years ago is AI and technologies like that. So, you know, image recognition has gone a long way. And I'm thinking that there may be some applications where we could use off the shelf like image image recognition technology just to get us to you know, a basic level I and mean, we can do some cleaning on it after to make sure that the data quality is good that we're getting out of it. Right. But at least we wouldn't have to hire, you know, a hundred interns to input, yeah. you know, God knows how many <laughs> records of data, right? It, it goes back a long way. There's all kinds of stuff down there, crazy stuff. Like, you know, there's uh, like records of, kind of galas and events that the early board would throw out in the 1930s and stuff like that. Like they would do, you know, vaudeville plays and weird things like that. (laughs) It's just bizarre, totally strange, but very interesting and fascinating history. Like the organization's over a hundred years old. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's wild to dig up the history. It's kind of like going to some grandparents' house and finding that you know, chest of, uh, stuff like that, or maybe they were in a war or maybe they were, you know, yeah. there's some history there and you're like, <laughs> just uncovering all these fascinating things. And, uh, yeah. So one day I'd love to do more with that. Uh, we have some other people internally who are interested in it from a kind of archiving perspective as well, but it, it's a tough project to get off the ground because of the actual, like documenting stuff like this. This is kind of gets into librarian sciences and stuff like that. It's, right. There's actually like a whole, like, theory and or just like theory and science behind this like right, it's, right, not, right. it's not you don't just go in and start digitizing stuff there's like you got to like create a record management system you gotta it's just yeah it's tough <laughs> and
3: i feel like it's 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 probably tough because you know you the market's always no matter what's going on in the market it's interesting and people want to know what's going on right so it's i feel like you probably are are drawn more to the present than yeah, you know, yeah, writing obviously. writing the the R E B G V history.
4: Yeah, like I'm not going to do a 1955 stats <laughs> press release or something, right? Although It would be a good April Fool's joke or something. Like, that. It's like you know, <laughs>
3: so. so so in in that vein, we're we're this will probably go out actually after the stats are released, but we're a day or two before the stats uh, in October are coming out. Yep. How's the uh, Vancouver real estate market?
4: Man, it, it's been surprising, I got to say. You know, uh last time I was here, I was surprised by it in in terms of the fact that, you know, we were at a point where we were just kind of coming off a big series of interest rate hikes. A lot of people had, you know, pretty dour predictions on the market. We had just put out a forecast, I believe, sometime a few months before I was on the show that was sort of saying the opposite of what, right. you know, most people were saying, and and our forecast did actually come to fruition. I just did a an event actually uh, online, it is recorded so people could check it out. The link is probably on our economics website. So it was a forecast update presentation. I went through that and, uh, you know, the market has really kind of performed per the expectations of the forecast, which I think is kind of surprising because usually forecasts are wrong. So, you know, what we saw is that sales kind of came in and roughly around where they were kind of last year-ish or what we kind of forecasted it. Uh, the price growth dynamic was one that I think surprised a lot of people, uh, myself included. There was you know, more price growth earlier this year than uh, than our model, sort of, uh, or the model anticipated with my finger on the scale. Of right, it. I, I remember you of, saying yeah, that. Yeah, I had kind of dialed it down because I was like, I don't know if it's going to get that high in terms of price growth with where rates were. But we did exceed the official forecast, even though the, it kind of hit what the model thought thought it would be. So I should have taken my thumb off the scale is what I should have done. But there's also a kind of, you know, corporate responsibility and messaging thing where like, you don't want to just put out forecasts that have, you know, crazy predictions of price growth, right. get, you know, because we're an organization that comes with some gravitas and we take what we say seriously and we don't want to, you know, stoke fear or frenzy in a market or something right, like that right. as well, right? Like, especially if that's not a scenario that's the most probable based on, you know, a kind of level-headed assessment of what the world looked like at that point in time. So yes, and today with the latest stats coming through, you know, we're like tracking basically to nail this forecast on, on, on the nose for sales this year. Like sales are coming in roughly in line with what we thought. And I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not super busy, but it's not super slow either. This market's kind of chugging along. It's doing its own thing. It's kind of, I feel like it's, Kind of hanging in there for better, better weather or something yeah. like that. Down right. The road, you know, feels it, a bit. That and like. is there,
3: I think what we've seen obviously was the spring was, was really busy. It seemed like there was a shift. Well, in hindsight, actually this, the, the summer almost seemed busy. Right. Cause I remember being mm. more optimistic, of, uh, optimistic about the market. And at the end of August, I was like, okay, the fall, you know, we were prepping listings and things like that. And then the last two months seem like it's there's not as much optimism in the market. There's not as it's it's just it's it seems like it's slowed down. Is that what what you're seeing as well?
4: Yeah, I kind of I I do think there's something to that story. I mean, uh the data's still showing, you know, like I said, we're kind of in line with what our forecast was, which is not necessarily a weak market, but not a super strong market. So it's kind of in the middle of the range, but what it does feel like to some extent in the past few weeks in the data is like it's feels colder somehow. Mm -hmm. I can't quite, like, even though the numbers are coming in roughly where we thought they were, there's something about the way it's coming in that I feel like I need to investigate a little bit more, and it's probably gonna surface a bit more in the data just as we go forward in the next couple months. But uh, yeah, I think there's a bit of a cooling, and it's showing up in the pricing side, so prices have finally stopped rising like month over month constantly. Like, they were going up 1%, 2% every month for, you know, based on HPI, anyways, with MLS HPI, I should say, for, you know, the past six, seven months. And then all of a sudden it's kind of cooled off. We're like definitely in flat range on pricing, which suggests, you know, more balanced market conditions and a little bit less appetite on the part of buyers. And, but, you know, maybe a bit of hesitance on the part of sellers too right now, Mm -hmm. like it's still a difficult rate environment, right? we're still going through this whole situation with Bank of Canada just held the rates and like, that's great, but we're still at like a very high policy rate and translated into very high interest rates. So it's tough for people out there. and That might be what's influencing those numbers under the surface. Hmm. How, how is Vancouver comparing to other
2: uh, national markets? Are you kind of thinking about us within that Canadian context?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. I, d- I did a piece on kind of related to that a little while ago. It was uh was looking at this new listings thing. There was, you know, it, it seemed in the data that there was, new listings were coming in slower than they were but this was back in the kind of spring-ish. And uh, kind of dug into it and I thought about it. I was like, well, I wonder if this is happening just here or is this something that's across the country or, you know, was there other places that this might be happening? So I managed to find some data in the U.S. that uh, Redfin puts out, I don't know, it's free data. I took a look at it and like, sure enough, they have this big slowdown in new listings there. And uh, I looked across at our Korea data, which covers all of Canada, looked at that. Sure enough, slowdown in basically every market on this, uh, you know, new listings thing. So, yeah, there was, you know, our market has a lot of parallels to other places right now. And, you know, the, the story I spun in this piece that I did on it was really that, like, there's, you know, in my view, a pretty obvious (laughs) culprit, which is interest rates, right? Right. Like across all of these places and countries and whatever, the one dynamic that's constant and consistent is this very high interest rate scenario. U.S. has a bit of a different uh, situation in that they have 30-year mortgages or whatever, right? You lock your rate in for a really long time. We don't have that here in Canada to the same extent. Uh, So- but they're having. It's interesting watching what's going on down south uh, and some of their real estate market analysts and stuff. They're talking about it because with with the dynamic there, where you have you know an ability to ro- lock in a rate for a really really long time in your home, you can kind of ride out a storm for a lot longer than you can mm-hmm. here. We have you know renewals coming up in Canada. There's quite a quite a bunch that are going to come up at a fairly high renewal rate over the next two three years. The U.S. They can just wait it out for a long time, but they are starting to see the same effects of you know, buyer and seller behavior that we see up here, even though people have, uh, you know, a bit more of a life raft up there, if you will, to weather out kind of difficult uh, financial storms. So, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 been neat to watch our market continue along and uh, I would say kind of recover a bit over the past year from what was a very wild couple of years prior, right, with right. COVID and, you know, some... So it's, yeah, it's been really interesting to see. Now, When you say buyer and seller behavior in the,
3: in the U S are you talking about just the lack of listings and inventory essentially like across North America that seems to have played out or are you seeing things more recently? It seems like inventory is, is better now than it was.
4: Yeah. There's here. more
3: inventory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe I'll put it to you. How, how is inventory? Are we, are we moving towards a balanced market? What are you, what are you seeing out there?
4: Yeah, I would say we're definitely uh, moving towards a balanced market at the moment. I think the last readings on the like sales to active listings ratio, which are kind of this measure of you know balance in the market. Usually if it's around if it's above twenty, this is kind of rough rule. Yeah, you know, if it's above twenty, you're talking about a seller's market. And if it's below twelve, it's kind of a buyer's market. In between, it's kind of, it's a balanced market. Well, you know, the the detached market right now in Vancouver is kind of more into that buyer's territory. Condo attached uh, is, is still verging on seller's market, but that's come down a lot from you know much higher readings of sales active list of ratio. Which you know, like I said, it's a measure of balance. And like what we've had is just really, really low inventory for a while, and so it didn't really take much in the side of sales to tip us into that seller's market territory. But now we've actually seen a spring back in those new listings recently. There's more stuff coming to the market. Uh, that's caused a bit of an uptick in the in the in the inventory levels and sales, you know, it's just part of the seasonal pattern of things too, right? We're getting into the end of the year and things start to slow down. There is a little bit of a bump and, you know, kind of right around now, basically, it's not not a big bump, but a tiny little shoulder in the data, if you will, that's kind of a little blip up in terms of activity. And then it drops off into December. It's just a classic pattern we see every single year. And you put those dynamics together and you've got yourself more balanced market conditions for now. So, so, we'll see how the spring shakes out, though. That's going to be an interesting one. We're we're going to get to that, but maybe uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't talk. Let's not talk
3: about the yeah. spring yet. <laughs> uh, I just was wondering about inventory, like. It, so I think last time you're on, we were like, "What? You know how how do we get out of this logjam of inventory? It seems like we're kind of out of it now, right? Like it's or moving in that direction." Do you have a sense of, you know, I think some people would would be thinking, okay, are is it rate renewals that's driving that? Do, do you have a sense of why people are deciding to list? Because it does feel like like we got a lot more calls this fall about people either listing or considering listing than in the spring. And it was kind of unclear what was going on, but it's funny how the market kind of moves that way, right? Like everybody... Everybody moves at the same time. Do you have a sense of why that's happening?
4: Yeah, I mean, like it's, you know, it's it's obviously hard to pull this out of kind of aggregate level data that we right. have, right? It's, uh, you know, I don't have people's individual reasons for listing in any of the data that I have, which would be very cool if I did. That. <laughs> it would, be really, would be interesting to know what precise drivers or motivations are getting people to come off the sidelines. But, you know, speculatively and, and just sort of what I would say is a bit of a, a logical way of looking at it is, you know, you had this, situation earlier where people weren't listing and people were sitting on the sidelines and you know maybe it's just a lot of those people are coming around to the realization that things aren't going to be you know super rose we're not going to be back at two percent interest rates anytime super soon Mm -hmm. and you know life happens you got to start making moves you got to do things people families grow people change jobs all kinds of people move for all kinds of reasons and i feel like maybe that's that has something to do with why we're starting to see an uptick there is uh some of that, it's a bit of a lagged effect. And, and we do see that in real estate markets pretty frequently where it's, I wouldn't call it like herd behavior or something, but we are all humans, right? And we, to a degree, kind of like exercise similar judgment processes as we go through life, right? Like if everybody's standing at the sidewalk waiting for cars to go, kind of rare somebody just bolts out out of the pack and does something unusual. We're kind of herd mentality that way in the sense that, you know, we all do the thing that seems reasonable to us at that point in time. And with a lot of people not really coming to the market earlier, I feel like that's just a a signal of people being all cautiously waiting for maybe better times, better, maybe more selection, more inventory. You know, I'm somebody that's been looking for a, a new place for a while it's very difficult to find what I'm looking for, but I, I'm looking for something rather specific, so that's a bit expected, but it's very rare to find something that really, like, I don't contact my agent almost ever because there's never anything to go see, and I'm not going to waste their time yeah. kicking tires on something that's just, you know, oh, well, yeah, sure, I'll just go check that out, cuz, but no, no, I like, I... I'm only interested in seeing something I would seriously move through with, and very few of those properties have come into market. That's that's we've talked a lot about that on the show, but this
2: idea that even when inventory, like you were saying, the the logjam of inventory has that gone away, and I still, even though you see the numbers going up, it's like the the amount of quality product is still kind of forever low in this because and it sells like. Last week we had you two. You mean the good ones? Like yeah, the yeah, yeah. One. Like we
3: brought two really nice properties to market last week and they yep. both sold in the first week. There you go. And you know, other people are like, ah, I haven't had a call on this listing in three weeks. So you're like, well, yeah. The yeah. only thing I'm noticing
2: is um, like downtown condos, for example, there's, there seems to be more inventory of, of like pretty good quality inventory. But if you are looking for something that's kind of unique, like like even in detached, like if, if mm-hmm. something comes up in like a great pocket or it's like a really great house, typically end user selling, right? Mm -hmm. It goes quickly, right? I I just find it so hard. And I, I had this conversation with an agent in North Vancouver recently about how challenging that market seems to be so much easier to look for Inventory trends and in, say the east side where we have so many land assemblies
3: and mm-hmm. tear downs. Yeah, It's Like Grandview has a uh, hundred properties on the market, but they're all on First and the yeah. Nimo and rent.
2: It's depressing <laughs> yeah. setting someone up for like a detached search because they get like yeah. sixty listings, and you, once you comb through, like you know, yeah. you're like, There's yeah, maybe two that two might, work. two to yeah. five yeah. that <laughs> might actually work for you. So yeah, I, th- I
4: don't, I don't think your story is that unique. Yeah, no, and that's actually you know I like coming to the show because that just gave me another idea for uh, some kind of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of other story because there's something great there, right? Quantity versus quality, right? Like that's the issues. Like there's while the number might be ticking up, what we actually have for sale is a very important, uh, you know, measure. But it's hard to measure from the data. Like yes, I mm-hmm. can measure it from some quantitative perspective. But like, look, everything on an MLS sheet looks the same—a four-bedroom, three-bathroom, whatever. It's just a number. Yeah. But four-bedroom, three bathrooms high-end finishes is a very different thing than four bed, four bed, three baths on first in yeah. Japan or whatever. Right. Hey, so, totally, It's been uh, a rental for the last 65 exactly. years or whatever. So, yeah. and that it's kind of difficult to tease out quality from the data without, you know, I mean, price is obviously an indicator of quality. However, when you get to land assembly, it becomes a bit of a very difficult thing to tease out of the data because clearly the land's worth more purely based on, on a per buildable or whatever. Right. right? So it's uh, uh that's, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thought. I'm going to take that away from this and think about if I can come up with something clever to kind of analyze that. Because maybe, that maybe there's really something cool. downstairs in the secret yeah, room. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. But it is funny, like just thinking about
3: that, how you set, and it's something we do, uh, you've, you have this conversation all the time. And I was just talking to Melissa on our team about this, but it's like there, uh, you set somebody up with a search. They're like, oh, there's a lot oh, it looks like there's a lot out there. And within like a month, it's like you've had to come to Jesus and they're, and then they're like, just the first thing that looks good after that, they're like, okay, let's jump on it. Cause it's yeah. so, it's such an underwhelming and depressing kind of process. A lot of the time, even if it seems like the inventory is good, mm-hmm. um, just to restate what we've said already. Well, times. and this is, and we've talked about this, but when uh, Hanny Lamam was
2: on the show from Cressy, but his comment about like, kind of like the, one of the best investment, uh, strategies you can you can use is to buy like a really great product in Vancouver, right? Mm-hmm. Because in a in a market where inventory is you know incredibly low, good inventory is like forever low, mm-hmm. right? Like it's he's like so you always it's like the best way to protect your asset, right? Yeah, and whatever you're looking for, and I always tell this with people when, like looking on the east side for a good house like here's the good news is that when you're going to sell your good house that we, that might in some cases takes like a year to two years to buy a good house on the east side. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. But like the good news is, is that you now have something that's going to be in high demand when you go to
4: sell. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's uh you know, it's good advice, right? It's classic investment advice. Like buy something that's a good asset. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Unless you know what you're doing, right? Unless you know how to buy something that's a Kind of a turd, if you will, and then turn it into a diamond, right? Like that's, but that's takes a different skill set and a higher risk tolerance and whatever. So it's a different kind of dynamic. Whereas, you know, that is sound advice though. Buy a good, buy a good home in a good location that you can comfortably, you know, fit into and financially afford that's some pretty solid advice. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah.
2: Do you have any sense of like the demographic trends right now that are kind of driving this current market? Like we've talked about on this show a lot about millennials and I always forget the generation that's following them, but what what's kind of driving the market right now from a demographic perspective?
4: Yeah. So like demographics are slow moving dynamics, right? So it's not something we watch like kind of day to day basis and be like oh there's 10 more 20 year olds in the market that right. are <laughs> but uh, yeah generationally speaking you know I, I did a bit about this in some previous work I think I did it in a, a presentation or something that's also in that uh, economics website uh, from RebGv but I was looking at um, these like longer term demographic trends and kind of how you know if if you're trying to explain, how homes have become so expensive here in this market, and why it's so difficult to find one, and why 20 somethings predominantly, or not just 20 something, but 20 to 40 year olds roughly, feel kind of the most difficulty in entering our market. I mean, the obvious one is when you're 20 or 30, you haven't built up a lot of equity or like assets in your life. You're not old enough, you know, you haven't been around, unless you're lucky to have somebody just hand you down wealth. You're just haven't been around long enough to make a lot of loot, right? right. Unless you invest in Bitcoin early <laughs> and you're one of those lucky few. But, uh, you know, there's just not a lot of vehicles like that that turn massive amounts of uh, something small into a lot of money very quickly. So you have this demographic that's 20 to 40-ish, and, you know, they're, every year, they get older. This is a fact. This is just plain as day in the data, right? And what happened was about 10 years ago, about... I'd say like, I don't know, I don't have the exact figures on this, but let's just call it something about like half of those folks, this big cohort, it's a big bump in the population distribution. It's a very big cohort of people, that 20 to 40 something demographic. They start entering into those years where they become, typically become home buyers from like a probabilistic perspective. You know, just we just know from the data that people live in their parents' home or whatever for a while, then they typically move move to a rental or something, or sometimes they go right into the the ownership market if able to. But there's a kind of like a a typical age where people do that. And we saw like a big chunk of that cohort moving into that age group. And that creates a huge amount of demand. But it's something that kind of happens at one point in time and we're still moving through this wave of population that's trying to enter the housing market. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, behind them in this demographic, you know, pyramid, if you will, there isn't as large of a population of And members. this
3: is the, the millennials. Yeah, which so are like, the largest generation since the boomers, right? That's right. This yeah. Is...
4: And the boomers had a very similar dynamic. When the boomers were 20 or so, they were all trying to get into the housing market at the same time. And they were, it was a big, huge cohort of people and they struggled to find homes as well. They, like People think boomers had it easy, but actually no, when you look demographically, there was a lot of them competing for homes. Yes, of course they could buy a detached home, whatever. That's a whole other story, but it was still difficult for many of them. I don't think it was super, super easy. So, you know, obviously there's always some case of somebody having easy or whatever, but I think generally, generationally, it wasn't, it has a lot of, parallels to actually the millennial group or you know that kind of 20 to 30, 40-somethings uh, currently. And with that group, the current group, uh, that, that younger cohort trying to get in the market, not having a big wave of people behind them doesn't necessarily mean like the market's going to crash or something like that. But it does mean that if we don't have some group of people of a, of a kind of similar quantity behind them, uh, there may not be as much demand uh, in the market in, you know, 10 years or so based on those kind of domestic trends that we see. Of course, the wild card here is immigration. Right. Right. So in the way that this all works, Canada and actually a lot of places in the world uh, isn't growing on its own. It it imports most of its growth from immigration. Uh, we our birth rate is low. We have, you know, one point something, one point two births per 1,000 women or something, whatever it is. It's some metric, and it's too low. it needs to be at least 2.1 or higher for the population to actually just replace itself. We haven't been replacing ourselves for 40-something years here. So it's a very long-term uh, demographic or a trend in the demographics and stuff that we don't have enough children. And so all of our growth is coming from that immigration component or most of it. And policy impacts that. And, you know, if the current government or future government decides to open up the floodgates, yeah, maybe we would have a big generation of people behind the current generation who might drive further housing demand in very big ways. If not, it may not look, you know, the market won't look the same. I'm not saying it's a dire scenario by any means. There's still a very Hmm. big population of people coming behind them. It's not like it falls off. It's just, it's not the same bump, right? Like this millennial generation, it's a large Cohort of people. It's very big. So, but like I said, as they enter those years where they typically find their way into the housing market, and yes, it's going to be challenging for many people to get in that. But the crazy thing about life and the way that humans work is like they always find a way, mm-hmm. you know? People like always find, whether they move away to a different place to find a home or whatever, they find a way to get secure in their life so that they can do the other things they want to do, have kids, whatever it might be, you know? And so I think we're kind of entering the tail end of that where that dem- dem- demographic is starting to find their way as a full cohort and uh it's going to be interesting to see how that how that shakes out over the next 10 years. You know, it's just as you're as you're detailing that I'm sort of
3: thinking of like a snake eating like yeah, some large thing that you can see going that's a good through. analogy, yeah. And this is something that's happening across the country, right? Because the millennials of course it's not just a Vancouver phenomenon. Right. And at the same time, the levels of immigration, it's like the snake is having trouble digesting the rabbit or whatever it's eating. And the federal government is literally forcing like right. three more rabbits down right. the snake's throat. At, that's a great analogy. But yeah. uh, so if, if that's actually, we're kind of, it's been aggravated by immigration policy, obviously. But what you're saying is, you know, there's a, there's a policy shift that could happen where that level of immigration goes away that generation moves through
4: that snake and then it's like where are we at now yeah you know honestly i think housing as a topic is going to continue to be an issue for many years because it's not just a numbers to people matching problem there's also like like we were talking about quantity versus quality yeah sure maybe there's a unit for somebody in downtown but if it's a one bedroom unit and they want to have a family then you have a quantity versus quality problem and right we may not have the right housing stock and that's one of the things i've kind of I've talked about somewhere else before, I can't remember where, but it was it was an interesting thought where it's like, well, you know, right now there's this big push to build a lot of housing and they wanna, you know, governments wanna show numbers. They wanna show units built. They don't really care what kind of units are built because they want to grandstand in front of a podium and say, we built X number of units. Right. But if all those units they build don't like housing is kind of a long game, and that demographic, that that apple in the in the snake or whatever, it's moving through, right? At 20 something now, sure, a one bedroom works for you. So we build all these one bedrooms. Mm -hmm. But by the time those one bedrooms are built and constructed, that's five, 10 years out, right? Well, that demographic's gonna be five, 10 years older, just by virtue of time passing. And they may not be demanding one to two bedroom units in the same quantities as they are now. Mm -hmm. They're gonna want two bedroom, three-bedroom, or whatever, because they're moving into different phases of life. So there isn't any thinking that I'm aware of at policy levels of government to strategize over you know, the actual, the built out environment in that sense of trying to match or f- match future populations of what their, you know, family composition might look like down the road to the housing supply equation. All governments seem to be focused on at the moment is matching units to people down the road. They don't care what kind of unit mm-hmm. it is. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there, I, I should be careful about that. I mean, obviously there's some thought has gone into this, but it's not, No, I haven't seen a government anywhere wheel out a platform being like, you know what, that generation's going to be 10 years older by that time. So this is the housing stock that we should be building for them and blah, 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 blah. Right. So, you know, I haven't seen that. Or if, you know, so if it exists, apologies for not being aware of it, but uh, I have not seen it. In thinking about that, because we just had
2: a conversation with, uh, just the episode just aired with Dustin Woodhouse about what the market has done kind of historically. And, And, you know, there's the common kind of saying, that in the lower mainland real estate prices double every 10 years, for example. Right? A lot of people now are kind of adjusting their thinking to that we might be moving into more moderate growth moving forward. And it partly because of, I guess, higher interest rates, but also maybe part of this is the, the demographic trends and and the price points. Like uh, Dustin, I think, was talking even from the perspective of affordability where we're at. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Uh, so. Thoughts on on what what like the next few years, next decade looks like for growth?
4: Yeah. And pricing, I mean, it's always like pricing is the hardest one to forecast. It's actually not that hard in some ways to forecast sales or whatever, because they're kind of repetitive. We have information about, you know, how many people there are and things like that. We can kind of ballpark that a little bit. But prices are a wild one because there's a lot of things that influence them. You have interest rates, you've got like, you know, demand and supply factors. And that supply one is a big one that obviously is, you know, a a big, important issue today. But one part of that, it's maybe talked about on your show, probably frequently, but not talked about elsewhere all that often, is the cost to build. So, you know, like even if you have a market that moderates on it from a, broader market-based perspective due to cooling effects from macroeconomic policy and maybe some demographic, you know, pushes through the system or cooling off and maybe immigration cools off or something like that. Suppose you had some combination of factors like that. Well, to build new product, that doesn't necessarily change the dynamics of that. Like those interest rate financing certainly has a very direct impact on that. But labor costs are something that are, you know, part of a labor market, which functions kind of Not entirely independent of those factors, but not 100% lockstep lockstep to it. So we got this issue. And, you know, if you look cost to build, like it's just been going up and up and up and up and it just keeps going up. And we've got policy induced, you know, costs that have been added recently. You've got federal government saying municipalities and provincial governments, you need to build more housing. And then. The prophet says, you guys in municipalities need to build more housing. And they slap targets on them. And the municipalities say, fine, if we're going to build that much housing, we're going to extract our pound of flesh, right? So they double DCs, triple DCCs, whatever. And like, you know, I don't know. It's a complicated uh, like argument to get into. I, wanna, I don't want to wade too deep into it because I'm not a developer. But I mean, watching it from the periphery, it's like, it's complicated. You do need to put in infrastructure and services to build a lot of new housing. You can't just slap up buildings without toilets and functioning kitchens, right? Like that's not housing. So Mm -hmm, there is an infrastructure cost. Is it as high as these cities are setting the cost to be? Supposedly the cities are trying to be transparent about saying, hey, you know, we had a consultant or whoever come in. They say this is the cost and we're adjusting our rates that way. But, you know, so anyways, the bigger story was, look, costs keep going up. Even if you have these moderating factors in the economy and all this, the delivery of new supply if we stay in this environment of higher interest rates higher cost to build tight light labor markets whatever i don't see the price of new product coming down purely on a cost basis so that means you're probably just going to sell less new product into the market because only you know there's only a certain buyer pool for stuff at those price ranges so you know it's going to be it's going to be a tough you know 10 years or so if uh, if the market if like some Dynamics don't start working out more in the favor of, of pushing on the demand side up, you know, right now. So, so so when you say tough for the
3: next 10 years, tough as in not building enough homes for people? Yeah. Okay.
4: Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, the cost of those homes and like the locations of those homes, right? Because like, if cost goes up a lot, the places where projects would probably be more viable are going to be in the outskirts of mm-hmm. cities, right? Like they're not going to be the downtown luxury project that might not move ahead in the same scales that it might have before because you had a lot more buyers and there's policy stuff happening these days with like short-term rentals and stuff. You know, you take investor people out of the market. You take away, if if you try to ban the investor side of the dynamic you're going to get less housing. Like mm-hmm. I can pretty much guarantee you that as a result. I don't need to do any fancy math or anything like to do that. It's like you're literally eliminating a source of demand. So you're just going to get less product built. And that's going to translate into a difficult situation for buyers down the road who are not going to have enough to choose from quantity versus quality. Again, what they will have to choose from is going to be whatever's available. New product tends to be good, but it's expensive. And, you know, that's just a dynamic that's going to have to play out for a while while people figure out their situation in this higher cost environment, still not like abundant inventory. It's, it's up, but it's not like a flood of inventory on the market. You know, people aren't taking 50% price reductions on properties, right? Like that's, we're not in that kind of inventory scenario. And I don't think we're going to get there based on the way that things are going. So, you know, you're not going to have a flood of new supply, regardless of policies. I don't think I, 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 I'm very skeptical that uh, government policies that are being rolled out now are going to have massive supply effects in any short period of time, so yeah, the dynamic looks challenging for buyers uh, down the road. I think it you know for pricing probably least at least stable, I would think over the next couple of
3: years I was going to say so does the uh, like I, somebody out there thinking. About the the resale market being obviously a lot larger than the the pre construction market, but yep. does the the building environment and the and the pre construction market generally in those conditions you've outlined provide a floor in some ways to the resale market?
4: Yeah, I think in, to to a degree, right? Like it's it's kind of tricky because, like I said, I think the the new construction market market it has that. Built-in cost problem, right? Like you, you were not going to get a new building built if you can't get the pre-sales to like you know fill up, yeah, right? Like you need to have enough demand for that product. Yeah, I mean, there's nobody's going to build something at a subsidy to somebody, right? Like they're not going to lose their shirt on a project, and they, they can't even to. get the financing. Yeah, right? so you're not going to get financing. Like I just don't think that's realistic. That's not going to happen. So you, you, the the new market just won't produce housing if the conditions aren't right for it. The resale market is interesting because it's obviously influenced by the new market new market uh new product enters the market sets comps you know to some degree it can create new like don't love the term but it can gentrify areas or whatever right Like mm-hmm. you can take an area that was not so in demand and new product enters it and all of a sudden it's very in demand and that changes the dynamics for the resale market in those surrounding areas there's no like it's not like they're there's some fence that like you know up in the in the neighborhood that's like oh on this side everything's crappy and over here it's all new and nice and like you know <laughs> no there's very much a gradient to that happens in terms of pricing and there's spillover effects from that and so i think like you know you can get dynamics where the resale market can have a lot more inventory on it you could see price haircuts and stuff but when it comes to the new market well if there's price haircuts and the performa doesn't work it just doesn't get built right so that new supply just won't materialize. Whereas on the inventory side and the resale side of it, it's like uh, inventory can materialize based on the financial conditions and people's, you know, budgets, I guess, and what they're forced to do perhaps under duress. But, you know, that's like one of those stories that comes up all the time is like, people look at our market, see the high prices, assume that everybody's up to their eyeballs in debt. And that's just not the case at all. The data doesn't support that story whatsoever, so... (laughs) It's interesting to think
2: of the, because one part of that question was, you know, is there a floor based, (laughs) and I I think that's the, one of the more interesting things about inflation and and kind of the post COVID market is that there, it used to be really surprising to see something below replacement value. And now there's a lot of stuff below replacement value. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like it's, it's so out of whack, uh, in the resale market and, you know, and, and I, I, I don't know how that, I, I wonder if there actually is the ability of like, like if there's a guiding light of percentage
4: of like what percentage or what, where does the floor enter, you know, yeah. resale, but. I mean, well, I wonder if it's, you know, it comes back to the quantity quality thing as well, right? Like, yeah, you might observe a price, you know, a significantly lower price in that resale market right now under certain. Areas and type product types or something, but then do a deep dive on what you're looking at in those numbers. And it might not really be as low as it looks, right? Like it's possible that it's a lot higher and closer to new construction if there, you know, if somebody was listing it, but nobody's listing some of that, you know, the good stuff. Everybody wants the good stuff, but there isn't enough of that right now, Mm -hmm. which again reminds me of that idea that I do want to look into. I feel like there's, there's got to be some way to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, if you will, in the data to see like, hey, know, how much good inventory yeah. is there out there? Like, you know, like that would be really interesting to... I would add a
3: level of uh, anxiety if I ever listed my home, which one would I fall under? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, oh God, I'm in the, yeah. I'm in the not good inventory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just thinking, um, and this is sort of a slightly different Direction, although related, Andrew, like it strikes me as, um, and we were talking about this last week as well. But like in in looking back over the last decade or twelve years, there there was you know consistently low inventory or interest rates, I should say, consistently low in, interest rates in a very stable environment. Right. And I think there was asset inflation kind of across across the board. Right. And then COVID was like on steroids and it was like yeah. Bitcoin and everything went crazy. But there was this l- long run of asset inflation. And I feel like the story that we told on this show and I f- was in the marketplace was like one of interest rates, but also of out of whack supply and demand. Right. And and I feel like we're clearly still in an out of whack supply and demand. Yeah. Uh, environment but the interest rates are different so like going back to this what does the next five ten years look like like is it significantly different and the the way why i'm asking than than it was in the last ten years and the reason i'm asking this is because that i was thinking about this during the idea of like developers won't build unless there's a buyer pool and that buyer pool is almost always investors Mm -hmm. but those investors are buying pre-construction because there's an assumption or a bet that prices are going to uh be materially higher and they're going to have a decent return. Mm-hmm. So like if that's not how the market's working, we're in a very different spot.
4: Yeah, I mean well, there's always going to be some subset of, you know, investors willing to take Okay, so investors are like a, a gradient. Sorry, hit the microphone. There. <laughs> but there's a gradient, right? So there's people who are very low risk and then there's higher risk kind of investor pools. And I think there's always going to be some subset of higher risk investors who are willing to take a bet on the future in places like Vancouver and fund pre-construction or whatever uh, as much as they, you know, as, fill their boots essentially, right? But the question is, is that going to be enough to hit the kind of sales targets that a lot of projects need to actually launch, right? There's Redma, which requires a certain amount of pre-sales to be hit before you can actually go actively market a project and so on and so on, right? So, or sorry, before you can actually like build a project and launch, get financing and so on. So, you know, there's that and then there's less risky uh, risk tolerant investors and how many of those are going to be around are they going to be enough to push that uh, new construction market along in a big enough way that those higher risk investors actually do you know hit the returns they might be looking for i don't know you know it's mm-hmm. honestly a bit of a wild card right now i feel like when when i read the news anyways i see headlines about you know de- developers pulling projects and stuff and what i see in some of the data is like On our, uh, you know, if I'm looking at land deals or something, like large land, like vacant land and stuff, it's not, uh, (laughs) it's not cooking over there right now. Right. (laughs) Right. So it's, you know, it reflects, in my view, uh, you know, a hesitance to enter the new, you know, the new construction market on the part of some developers, not all. I don't think we're going to see very much new product uh, launched in the next 10 years or so based on the conditions we have currently and policies in place and stuff. I, I think it'll be more of the same at best, I'm going to guess. And at worst, I think we'll probably see a reduction in the amount of new supply that we see coming to the market. How much? I don't think it, by any means it would be a crash or anything like that. That's I don't know that that's a realistic scenario in kind of any sense, because just because of this demographic wave we still have. We still have a huge amount of demand for housing in this region, regardless of economic conditions and stuff. People still need a place to live and we're still importing people every year in this right. country. So there's, you know, there is a very robust and real demand for housing. The question is like, you know, can those people afford new construction projects or whatever? Not, I don't think all of them can. Some can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the our our resale market is going to adjust accordingly, I think, as well. It's like, if there was a huge amount of new product being built, I don't know. Maybe there we would see more people listing their homes on the market because they might be wanting to move up to those newer homes and something like that. There's a correlation between these two things, and uh, so I kind of feel like if we're not getting a lot of new construction, the resale market might not be as uh, robust as it might otherwise be because there's just fewer options for people. That's one theory. I don't know. We'll we'll put it to the test over the next few year years and
2: see what happens. Hey, everyone.
3: new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.
2: What about the incentive now with the GST um, from the federal government for purpose-built rental uh, or market rental? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on, I mean, to me, that seems like, and, and this is assuming that the DCCs don't take that five percent. Oh basically. yeah, they certainly will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and this is assuming that there's like a real incentive for developers to to to, to build. Um, but I'm just thinking about that, like if we're if our if we're if we continue to incentivize purpose built rentals, which is what I think everyone agrees we need a lot more of. Mm-hmm. Um, Canadians still want to be homeowners though. Yeah. Like that's like the, you know, it's almost like in the DNA of, uh, of, of Canada. Like it's yeah. like, it's at the forefront, right? Yeah. So, I mean, are we also going to spend, or are we going to see a lot of developers potentially pivot, start building market rental and see another way of, um, you know, less supply coming on online?
4: Yeah. You know, probably a better question for an actual purpose-built rental developer, but I'll. I'll <laughs> give you my two cents on it uh whatever they're worth you know so first of all the happy to see the government you know federal government say hey we're gonna rebate this gst we it, we did some work at, at rebgv about that my, my colleague harriet's been talking about this kind of issue she's a our, our government relations uh director at, at rebgv and you know we we brought this issue to like uh six months ago or something like that. And I mean it's 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 not new. People have been talking about this forever, right? It's just a way to incentivize purpose-built rental. Is it a big way? No, it's a token gesture in some ways. Like it is not going to massively move the needle on purpose-built rental, but it does make a difference. And the trouble with rental, from my limited experience and understanding with it, uh from running on is that the numbers and the margins are super tight. Right. So every little thing you can do to improve those margins helps get more of that built. And we definitely need a lot more rental in the market. I like I think that's honestly probably one of the best, you know, what do you call arrow in the quiver or whatever it is, or there's some saying like that that the government can use to make some kind of impact on the market. And I, I would like to see, you know, federal government, provincial government get more involved in the direct funding and construction of purpose-built rental projects and build them on mass, because we have just way, way too few of them. Now, we can I'm sure somebody's listening there and be like, forget government building this stuff. You know what happens when government builds things? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know, I know. That doesn't mean private market isn't going to build it either, but it's just like, we need everybody to build as much of that product as possible. But back to the financing part of it, it's like, look, it's not going to move the needle enormously. I think from what I recall running the the numbers on it, the GST thing, like of the total project cost, it's somewhere, I don't know, three, 4% of total project cost or something. It it kind of shaves for you. So it's like, yeah, it's something, but it's, you know, it might <coughs> move the needle. You know, when, when it's such a razor thin margin, that might be enough to tip the scale. Depends on where the margins are at for uh, any particular site and development. And, and in my view, it's always super site specific. It's not like a one size fits all Kind of pro forma for all areas so but yeah you know then of course cities are going to recapture some uh value from dccs and stuff which yeah it's a tough like i said it's a tough thing because you got to put in the pipes you got to put in the infrastructure you shut down roads you got to pay people it's it's like it's complicated i don't know you know like i i I don't work for the city i'm not gonna i'm glad i don't have to figure that out uh i don't want to be in the political milieu of that that's just a quagmire but uh it's, uh yeah, so then uh it's, I think, like, are we going to get a ton of new rental? No, I don't think, because we just haven't had enough, like, it's, like I said, the margins on it are kind of dicey. It's tough to build it. You got to get a lot of developers who want to build it. You know, that's hard to find when the margins aren't great, right? Like, right. who invests in stuff where right. margins aren't awesome, right? right. Like, so there are groups out there that exist that are looking for those long-term, stable cash flows that will build it, and they will come, but they're you know, it's one of the things that bugs me too, is that you get governments that say, oh, well, no, we we want rental, but we don't want uh, some, you know, financial entity or something like it to be the financier of this or to own it or whatever, because that's the financialization of real estate. It's like, okay, well then fine, don't have any rental then, because they're pretty much the only (laughs) one who are going to build it right now. You know, there's not that many people who want to invest in it. So take your, you know, take your pick, right? And I think that's kind of, the tough reality that uh, politically people need to swallow and, and kind of get over. is like, do you actually want more new housing supply or do you just want to pretend you want housing supply under very specific conditions of how you want housing right, supply? Right. It's like, no, no, I want, I want it this way, that way, whatever. This person can buy it, that person can't buy it. Uh, all of these rules don't add up
3: to a recipe for more. Product right. It's like you'll have your perfect home in your mind.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, it's kind of it, it's it gets into that depressing cr- sort of category of, of conversation around the top of, of real estate, you know, not just Vancouver, anywhere where, you know, a market is supply constrained or whatever. It's. You got to make the numbers work. You have to create policies and incentives for the, you know, investors who do fund these projects and get stuff built. Even if I know there's the argument, oh, investor buys it and it's not for a local. It's like, look, if it builds housing and an investor (laughs) eventually will move on from that product and it will be housing for somebody and somebody, you know, it's not entirely investor owned, right? You, you sell out a project, some, component of that are local buyers. And without the investors there to help move the needle to the right level of pre-sales or whatever, you don't get the product. So it's like, I don't know, just, something's got to give there. And it's it's a real bummer to watch it uh, kind yeah. of just happen out there in the political space of all this kind of talk about oh no, we can't do it this way because of that group. We don't like that group. We don't want them doing this, whatever. Ugh, I don't know, man. <laughs> We're just it's <laughs> like, what are we going to do? You know, like, uh, so Alicia. from that perspective, when you look at it from that way, I can see the argument of some of those higher risk investors saying, you know, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road with that dynamic in play of not building enough new housing. There really is only one way that prices go under that kind of situation, but that's a bet, right? So, yeah. They, they double
2: in 10 years. <sighs>
4: It, yeah, in some cases, you know, there's interest. it's one of the things that I was looking at in the data, still trying to kind of explain a little bit where there's a period from about like, I don't know, two, after 2008, 2009 to about 2014, condos were kind of flat or like attached. It's flat in pricing. I mean, I think it's one of those quantity versus quality things again in the data as well. Like I don't know. I, was, I wasn't really shopping that much for a condo at that time. I couldn't tell you what the inventory trends were like on the ground. But from a data perspective, pricing looked pretty flat which suggests that we actually had you know at least enough uh housing supply at that time to keep prices from rising maybe it wasn't enough uh overall to prevent this subsequent boom in prices that we had from this demographic moving into the home buying years and so on but there was enough to keep prices from escalating for a bit then of course 2014 happened and or, i mean I don't really know what the event was in 2014.
3: Uh, I yeah. think a lot. Well, I I remember that the, that was when oil collapsed. I think the Canadian dollar collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a lot more Americans in the market for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and then we saw in downtown, right? That was when downtown like 2016, 2017, especially did 30%. Right? Yeah.
4: It just blows up, right? Like I'm looking at the day. I was looking at some uh, land data the other day as well. So like dollars per acre. And this is out in like suburban areas, like Langley, Alder Grove, whatever, flat, 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 like, you, you know, all the way. Then it hits 2014 and it goes, boom, like right yeah. up with the same with. So I was like, look at that. I'm like, well, you know, if you were undersupplied, theoretically, I would think that you would observe a longer term just kind of steady growth rate in land prices because you're undersupplied the whole time. People are bidding up the price of land because they want to, there's not enough out there so of products, so they need to bid up the price of land to build it. Right. I would have expected to see, you know, but there might be some issues with that data or something, so I don't fully trust it yet. i got to tease it up, but it, it is a it's interesting that it parallels the condo market and so on. And there's just sort of this abrupt juncture somewhere around 2014. As you say, you know, anecdotally, yes, there's we, there was the conversation about foreign investors. Yeah. Maybe there was more Americans like we don't really have great data on that. No. And I mean, I logos. guess anyone shopping without Canadian dollars, it suddenly
3: looked a lot cheaper, right? Perhaps, that, yeah. was, that was, uh, I remember at least part of the narrative at the time yeah. how people were explaining it. You know, one thing that just struck me is, and I've never really thought of this, is that the condo market, uh, as you said, was kind of flat till 2014. Downtown is like the perfect example of a market that shot through the roof Mm -hmm. for a three-year period. And it's basically been flat ever since. Yeah. Yeah. So like in terms of like the longer decade or even
4: longer term, yeah. it's been relatively flat a lot of that time. Yeah, I don't I wouldn't say it's doubling every 10 years currently. No, uh, you know, at no. The rate, But uh, it's still, you know, it's still expensive down there. Oh, it's yeah. Not, it's yeah. not cheap, right? No, and I think of course. Maybe that speaks to some of the limits of people's purchasing power and stuff, right? Is like maybe we're approaching approaching levels where it's getting harder and harder to sell. You know? The dollar swing used to really matter, remember?
2: Because we were just talking about that recently as well, this this idea that, you know, before the foreign buyer tax uh, came in, we used to talk about almost like the tale of two markets. Mm-hmm. One market, like when the local market would be busy, and then when we'd be getting calls from people from the U.S. or from Hong Kong or from wherever, right? Mm-hmm. And it was yeah it was, right. That's
3: totally gone away.
2: That's totally gone away. It's it's totally gone away now. Like that doesn't like it's not like right now. It's like the question now is is the
3: local market busy? Yeah, yeah. Right? Or at and least actually, that seems to be. And so if and I'm not an economist, but if for instance Canada enters a a deeper recession than the U.S. and we have to drop our interest rates before them um, and the dollars impacted there mm-hmm. because of the foreign buyers tax and everything else. That that load, the collapse in Canadian dollar doesn't have the same impact in terms of investment in Canada. No, you won't in, see somebody take uh, an extra 20% haircut on yeah. whatever they're And a lot of people on principle won't do it, even if it like kind of looked exciting from a dollar perspective.
4: Yeah. You know, I mean, with the policies being rolled out, uh, government, you know, government's looking to kind of, like I said, just very, be very prescriptive of who can and cannot Mm -hmm. buy certain property sort of, you know, it's becoming almost like there's like a, just like a, a mold you have to fit per government to actually be a purchaser in the market. Right. right. And it's like from my perspective, a bit concerning because you're you're starting to get a very narrow description of a buyer and uh you're eliminating demand. And that's going to eliminate new supply if you if you want, you know, new stuff. And like that cross border shopping probably has, you know, cooled off to some degree. Like uh, I would I would imagine just with COVID and stuff too. Like, you know, it was really hard to get across the border for a while. And like, May I think the recency of that in memory? People are thinking, well, what if something like that happened again? Right, you know, like it. Well, I got this condo up there I can never use, or whatever, right. you know, or whatever or that place in Whistler I can never go to because some I don't know. You know, people think in those ways. I think like to say I do anyways. Like I, you know, we had this pandemic, and every day I wake up thinking like, oh, it's possible something like that could happen again. Sure. I, like because it happened now the reality of the possibilities there. Whereas before it happening, I never thought anything about a pandemic. Yeah. I was like, no, that's something you read about in history books or whatever. Right? You like, stopped
3: looking at Point Roberts Real Estate is what you're saying. <laughs> I used
4: to look there. I, oh, what, a, what a cool market. It's super, have you ever been down there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just weird, but it's so, like I, th- I have a like soft spot it's, for it. It's just, it's so unique. It's yeah. a pretty neat spot. Yeah, yeah. there's some, re- like it's wild because you'll see like really cool, nice houses, really interesting architecture. And then you'll just see like, some house with like I don't know Coors like beer cans all over the lawn or something. <laughs> You're like, whoa, that's a big adjustment from that one to that one. And yeah. it feels
3: very American down there oh, yeah, in a way, yeah. like almost in an exaggerated way for it's Deep South.
4: <laughs> yeah, You're yeah. Like, I'm told I don't know Kentucky how
3: Kentucky. All of a sudden, <laughs> I don't know if this
4: is true or not, but I I heard once before that it's uh there's a lot of people in like witness protection program or something. I've that's,
3: heard
2: that. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I have I have a, a friend of mine that it's so funny. Um, he's from Point Roberts and he's got. Like a um, very Latino last name, but he's like uh, an incredibly Caucasian <laughs> guy. And I'm trying to he, think of he who he you're talking his, about. Uh, I don't think you know him, but his, oh, okay. he, he thinks his parents were in the witness protection program. Quite possible. And and why like that would be? To, oh, that would be the it. perfect yeah. place yeah, yeah. to put somebody, yeah, right? It's because to it's get like here. impossible. Arturo to get Ramirez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: interesting. You know, this is totally an aside. Um, I just, I've been thinking about this for a long time, how usually in inflationary uh, environments, people buy hard assets, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, because, you know, it's a good store of value and real estate, traditionally in, in high inflationary, you can ride it out um, and it's going to rise with inflation. Uh, and we used to hear that all the time and you still hear it, but of course with interest rates in the short term yeah, to try and battle that inflation, it's like, you know it really puts a damper on on it rising with inflation is do you have a sense or is there any and i'm literally thinking out loud here like in terms of i guess it, it there's there's so many factors that go into this but in terms of real estate catching up to that inflation like what adam was talking about about replacement costs and things like that like we're literally under replacement costs and a in a lot of markets, is there kind of a a series of things that have to happen before (laughs) it's actually a store of value that's moving with inflation?
4: Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one to answer because uh, (laughs) like like you said, there's a lot of moving pieces too. I I mean, where I would start with the conversation is that like, you know, housing first and foremost is not an investment for most people. Like uh, I know it's spoken about that way now because of what prices are and so on. And people think a bit more in those dimensions. But first and foremost, for most people, it's a house. It's where they live. It's their home. They're they're not saying, "Oh, I'm going to buy this instead of uh, however many ounces of gold or whatever," right? Because right? that's not the calculus they're making. They're they're just saying, "I need a place to live." Uh, on the investment side of it, for investors who look at things like that and want to avoid having the erosion of their purchasing power from inflation, I mean, I think there's a lot of better options than a housing or investing in you know a hard asset like a house because houses are not inherently liquid. Uh, there's large transaction costs. Uh, lots of things can happen. Government policies and things can get in the way. Uh, you're probably better off just buying some gold or something or whatever. You know, <laughs> like uh, in an ETF and paying three bucks for a commission and you know whatever. You could be in and out like that. So you know, is it going to be like? Can housing catch up to the inflation? Well, I think in some ways, like housing has. It's it's part of the inflation number, right? Right. It's, the, it's part of the basket. There's a housing cost. There's a shelter cost component which is, I think, part of it's like a, it's a weird formula that has something to do with like, deriving the, the, uh, the theoretical rental value, essentially. It's like, it's like as if you were renting your property to yourself. Like, what's that cost? Sort of like a user cost. And that goes into the inflation basket. And so part of the number going up in inflation has to do with that. There are other measures of inflation that strip that, that calculation out of saying, oh, well, no, we don't consider like volatile components or things like housing uh, component in there, but you still have inflationary impact in, in those measures. Like we have a lot of, and there's been quite a bit of inflation, more than we, I think, many people expected. Uh, very good news is like the recent data is showing a bit more of a slowdown in that, which is, I think, really encouraging. I think it's good for, you know, consumers and the real estate market going forward. I think uh, if we get some kind of even modest um, reductions in borrowing costs from a reduced policy rate and so on, I mean, I wouldn't say the market's going to get off to like gangbusters or something like that, but I do think that will bring a lot more people into the market with a bit more certainty, feeling like, okay, well, that's what rates were at. So, you know, if we lock in and they go up like a percent or two or whatever, like we know what the market was like then, it wasn't a crash or whatever, they're going to feel safer and more confident entering the market. And I kind of feel like we'll see more activity. Uh most people are pegging, uh, you know, a, a rate rate declines and modest ones of quarter point or something like that. in about six, seven or six, seven months or something like that. Uh, that's where the markets have them pegged right now. But I mean, this changes on a daily basis, <laughs> you know, Like it's, it's hard to predict rates, but, uh, yeah. I think the biggest thing for like, I, you know, I think you kind of said it
2: earlier, um, Andrew, when you were talking about almost waiting, I can't remember how you phrased it, but it's like a market waiting on on different weather or something like that, right? It's like I feel so like last year when we think about the optimism that kind of entered into the just overall economy and where rates were going around, or not last year, sorry, March of this year, yeah, mm-hmm. like this spring, this spring, like we saw what the market did, and it, all of a sudden it was like you know you're doing two percent a month in in, in price appreciation, yeah, you're seeing people fighting over over homes again, multiple offers, like in, in a lot of different sub markets. And then, and then it's like, and the cert, there seems to be a level of certainty there and comfort there to buy. And it's, everyone comes off the sidelines and now we're back and it feels a lot like November of 2022. Yeah. Right. Where it's like this, there's, there's feelings of uncertainty after the two rate increases, some high inflation numbers, but it, it's, it's, pretty easy to imagine a spring market or early next year, um, more optimism mm-hmm. and more certainty around yes. rates or even certainty where yeah. we're
4: back right back into the summer of this year level of activity. Like yeah. it, does that? Yeah. And I mean, that inventory part of it is the key to the equation, right? I think like their spring, excuse me, we we're, we we're bumped up against very low inventory that led to the, like, it was pretty easy for prices to grow under those conditions. Mm -hmm. If we enter, you know, this coming spring and we have more inventory in the market, even if we get that optimism, we might not see the same level of price growth. So I would caution people thinking like, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. things are going to go up crazy once once they, you know, raise rates. Well, in my view, really hinges on the level of inventory. And with a lot of rate renewals coming up still, like, I don't think it's a panic situation really for most people. There's obviously always going to be some people very pinched in these, you know, conditions. But it's not I don't believe it's the majority of people. I don't see banks like panicking necessarily, at least not publicly, Mm -hmm. about their books. Uh just did a show with uh Randy Chin from RBC and, you know, he was chatting about like their mortgage book and like they're like, yeah, they you know they have distressed clients and stuff like that, but they're doing what they can to get them through on the payments and so on so they can so, you know, I don't see this like major distress selling scenario that I think a lot of people thought might happen. I don't see that necessarily materializing. However, with rate renewals coming up and rates continuing to be in this like very high <laughs> level, mm-hmm. there may be people who are going to have to change what product they're in, where they live or whatever, just purely based on their own financial situation. And it may not be an enormous hardship. It's just to make the numbers work and be comfortable, right? Like. Uh, so we'll see, uh, you know, if that keeps the inventory levels higher, I'm not sure we'll see the same level of kind of price appreciation that we just saw. However, if we end up in another, like, this is one of the weird things about our market. Like, uh, it's kind of hard to explain just like on a podcast or something easier to show on a chart, but we, we have, you know, on a trended basis, like our inventory level in this market is the lowest it's been in that data going back to the early nineties. It's super, super low. Like on a trend, you know, like this is we are rock bottom. You know, this right. is not good scenario in terms of like options for people. And it'll kind of creep up a little bit, and then we'll be in a conversation like this. Oh, the market's balanced and stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah. But we just creeped up off the rock bottom. You know, we're not anywhere close to like a true balanced market, which would be like getting listings on our Inventory to trend around 15,000 or something like that. We're still at like 10,000 or 11,000. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it may seem like a small amount of, you know, in a a kind of numerical sense. Oh, 10,000, 15,000, whatever. Nope. Makes (laughs) a huge difference in a market this size. It's like that's a lot of extra homes on the market and it can dramatically shift the way the market operates. So it's weird because we're just, like I said, it's sort of like, I feel like we're on this kind of like threshold. That we sort of sometimes cross below and it's like, boom, the market's off to the races. Prices are rising really quickly and stuff because we just hit this really critically low threshold. And the minute we come back above that, things start kind of chilling out and everybody just hangs out for a bit. And then it's like, go dips below and it's, boom, we're back to this whole city. So it's like, wow, you know, we're kind of like stuck in this cycle, you know? And that has to do with this like perpetually low supply story. Like back in the 90s, in the early levels of that data, we were trending somewhere around like 20,000 or maybe even more listings in the market. It was double what we had. And there was a lot fewer homes. There was fewer homes. There was fewer people. We had, you know, literally millions less people in the region. Now we have millions more people in the region and we have half as much resale inventory on the market at any given point in time. So it's like, it's a big, you know, that's a, that's a complicated dynamic. Yeah. It's hard to get
2: out of. So this is interesting though. So like, you're almost saying that the market reacts To low inventory, like the fluctuation in inventory, is what
4: is what is really creating market sentiment in a lot of ways. So, in the forecasting models that I built for doing the forecast that we did, they're called these vector autoregressive models. Anyways, kind of what they are are like a set of equations. Okay, so you think you think you have like one plus one is one equation, two plus two is another equation, whatever, and each one of these equations is some variable in our market. So one would be inventory and it has some equation associated with it. One would be sales it has some equation associated with it. And what this model is, is it's set up so that all of these equations have to balance out at the end. Of the day. It's kind of like an accounting book or something. It's a balance sheet sort of thing. You have to, there's no way that the numbers in the system can be entirely out of whack. It all has to like gel. Each equation has to feed into another and it all has to balance. It's an interesting model because what it, you know, in the way that real estate markets work, I think it very much has this dynamic. There's like these kind of core components in our market. You have new listings, you got inventory, you got sales, and you have the prices. These are kind of the key drive variables in our market. And those all have a relationship to each other in a pretty specific and repetitive way. So when you shove them in a model like this, those relationships are really strong. And what happens is like you can kind of shock this model and do fun things with it to see what happens to various Uh, you know, any one of those parameters, if I want to know what happens to prices based on low inventory, I can simulate a shock to inventory and say, well, what happens if inventory goes up, prices do this or whatever, right? That's what the model is going to tell me. It's just like this locked in sort of equation. And on that inventory level, being at this kind of critically low threshold, it's like we're just at this kind of spot in the model where every time you hit this really low point, things get turbocharged because we're at very, very critically low thresholds. If inventory was 5,000 more units or something like that, the effect on prices would be way more washy, be more muted in the model. Like it wouldn't come out as strong. It wouldn't show up uh, as obviously because you're in this point where it's like, well, the effect from that one variable is not as acute on Mm -hmm. the price metric or whatever it is that you want to measure. And that just feels to me like the way we've, been for quite some time here. And the, that trend that in the inventory, even though it may be sort of going up a little bit, like, uh, you know, on a month over month basis for the past few months, it's nowhere near that, like, really, truly balanced market territory of, you know, 15,000, 16,000, maybe 17,000 listings. That would be where you start having kind of more washy price effects where, like, the variations in inventory in any given point in time don't have a hell of a lot of impact on the market. But every time I watch inventory super closely in this market, because to me, I just see that kind of critically low threshold and see like every single time we dip below there, there's a big run in prices because it's, it's just the quantity, quality thing again. You know, low, low inventory. People want to buy something. They go out looking. It's super depressing. They see a bunch of terrible properties. And then the first time something comes good, that's good on the market, they're willing to pay like over the ass mm-hmm. or whatever it's because they're just sick of looking at Terrible. Process. Just get it done. Yeah. So it's until we see, you know, a supply level and measured by, you know, the resale inventory in the market here that is quite a bit higher than it is currently. And then you have to also pair this with the population. Factor like, you know, even if we got to say 15, 16,000 listings, great. But if population tripled over the same period, it doesn't matter. Like then we're still in this problem, right? So there's kind of a balance between all these variables that has to be struck. And I, I, you know, I think we're going to be stuck in a kind of difficult inventory, inventory situation for quite a number of years still. Will that lead to double digit price growth and stuff? No, not necessarily. Still depends. You know, we can still get periods where prices don't grow really, really quickly. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's what I mean when I say it'll be kind of challenging for people over the next 10 years or so. It's like, we still have this dynamic of people trying to enter the housing market. There really still isn't just enough supply laying around for people to buy, you know, and it's and then you look around at the cost, you know, it's hard to argue with it, right? Like that's the one fact that it's, people will, you know, it's, I think is where a lot of the political cover comes from to do the policies they're doing is people look around and say, well, it's like, two point something million for a detached home. Like, I mean, (laughs) how am I supposed to make that work? And like, look, people make it work because a lot of people have equity, but that's not everybody. Yeah.
3: You know, I'm just thinking you you mentioned earlier that you very recently did the forecast revisited. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any comments or forecast on, on forecasting out, you know, I don't know, Next six months, next year.
4: Yeah, yeah. So As if, many
3: forecasts as you have, we like forecasts. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah, so what that one was doing is like, I took stock of how the forecast that we put out has been doing, and it's actually been doing pretty good. We weren't quite on the nose on pricing, but we were very much in line on sales. So I kind of revisited that towards the end of the presentation and said, hey, well, what's, you know, what's a sneak peek of the 2024 f- forecast, which we, I haven't finished. It'll be released in January, but I got to run the like the data needs to be complete for the yeah. year. I need to like, get more information about various policies and stuff and see where interest rates shake out. There's a lot of things I need to calibrate. But when I ran the modeling at that time of the presentation, it was suggesting that at that time, you know, next year, frankly, is going to look a lot like this year. And I know that's kind of the way these models usually work too. They're they're kind of funny. It's like, what's the point of even running it? It always just tells you what the average is going to be basically on the past whatever number of years. But sometimes there's a big dislocation to the system, right? Like if there was a big dislocation in sales, say we had like sales just running at five times normal or something like that, well, the models would tell me there'd be some interesting dynamic that I should be observing and watching for down the road because of this very out of whack sort of scenario. But right now, all of the variables are kind of like in this you know pretty steady-ish state of a, of a relationship together. And they're suggesting that next year looks a lot like this year. And, and if nothing changes... That's pretty much what the forecast is gonna be for next year when we put it out in January. It's gonna be like pretty much the same as this one. And uh are you gonna put your thumb on the scale this time? Yeah, you know, it's hard to take it off the damn thing. It's, like, <laughs> it's just like you get there in front of the numbers and you look at it and you're like, Oh I don't wanna I don't wanna I also have to go on the news. Right. And yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. I got to talk about these things. If I put out a forecast that says, oh, you got to right? walk down your street. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, the amount of people that be calling me. And then, of course, when you're wrong, right, like the most famous example we have recently is CMHC's bold call for a 20 something percent price. You know, it's like you heard you, it here you, first. Yeah. When you, when you make calls <laughs> like that, it's you get a lot of calls about it right. and then you have to back it up. You got to yeah. answer it. And I'm not saying it's roll. you know, it's, I'm not saying that we just make up a number because that's what's easiest to deal with. No, it's a balance. It's like, look, I don't know what the number is going to be next year, right? Like I'm in the business of forecasting, but I don't actually know I do the best I can to guess. That's what this game is. It's like, (laughs) that's all anybody can do, you know? And I do that based on the best information that I have available at that point in time, the best modeling that I can do with whatever technical tools I have available at my disposal. And like, those are the answers. And, you know, it just right now, it really, like I said, it really does look like. Next year's shaping up to be a lot like this year has been. Uh, that doesn't surprise me at that all. That
3: doesn't though. surprise me either. But just to be clear, so that means sales volume around X and yeah. prices doing.
4: Yeah. So sales what? this year, I think we were calling for somewhere like twenty eight thousand five hundred sales in the board, Greater right? Vancouver kind of regions is it, you know, it encompasses like Squamish and Whistler and stuff too, right. and some of the islands. It's kind of complicated. It's not like a neat and tidy little geography of the Vancouver census mo- metropolitan area. Right. It has these different. So anyways, yeah, it was about 28,500 sales. That was this year's forecast. I'm going to guess at currently that we're going to be somewhere around that next year, maybe 29,000. I could, I could actually see this going up a little bit if we have slightly lower borrowing costs next year. At some point, I could see our sales doing slightly better than this year. And on pricing, I think at the moment, I'm going to have to stick with like a 1% to 2% kind of price growth scenario. And that's that's based on an average price measure, which I'm probably going to switch up in the modeling. I kind of talked a bit about it in that forecast review. It's like I'm using an average price, a super noisy price indicator. It's like hard to nail the price because the metric is so volatile. It's like, you know. But I, it's hard to use the HPI because they rebase the number sometimes because of revisions to the model. So I could be way off just because they rebase the model or whatever, which is it's totally fine to do that. But it messes up your forecasting. So anyways, I might come up with a slightly better methodology for forecasting price. But I do think that we're going to be somewhere yeah, 1% to 2% guessing. I think it's a growth year. I don't think it's a necessarily. A very, a yeah, year. but minor growth, minor, nearly flat and that, you know, the big, I think the kind of two big wild card variables sort of at the moment, I mean, if you can call them that, is the interest rate scenario, obviously. That gets, somehow, you know, it's kind of weird. I think it was last time I was here, you were saying like bad news for the economy is good news for the market or something like that. Yeah, am yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of feel like there's maybe a bit of that scenario. Like if we kind of have this, like a like a technical kind of recession, but it's not paired with a tremendous amount of job losses or something, and that forces a policy rate you know reduction by some significant degree you know that could be a scenario where you get quite a lot more activity in the market based on significantly lower borrowing costs and then i could see a higher price growth scenario under that condition for sure and so the other variable is the inventory one right it's like where's that going right now it's tending towards that more balanced territory but look if spring rolls around and we have somehow like lower borrowing costs it's not going to take that much to tip the inventory back to that critically low threshold I keep talking about. Mm-hmm. And then boom, you're off to the races again in prices. It's like, we got to get off that like lower bound that we're on, on the, on the, on the inventory side. If you, if, if that number doesn't start growing steadily, we're in this limbo forever. This is just what it's going to be. It's going to be constantly like you hit the threshold, prices go up, <laughs> it goes <laughs> up on the inventory, the things level out, and then so on and so on. You know I mean? It's, that's just what it's going to be. It's like, so there's no other way around it, right? Like it's uh, it's just a, it's a repetitive pattern that we see in the data every single time. Hmm.
2: Well, on that optimistic note, we'll leave it there. But uh, Andrew, we do have this uh, quick segment. We've put you through it before. The five wire. Can you stick around for that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The five wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey. That sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive, tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over
3: a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the Lower Mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive
2: network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country.
3: There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Question number one, we know that you uh, you read a lot.
2: What's uh, one book that you'd recommend for our listeners that you might have on the go now?
4: Unfortunately, no books, all technical documentation. I, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I'm like, seriously, like I, like I said, I got this uh, side of my job at the board where I'm working on sort of technical things in the background. There's things I don't fully know about, and I'm doing my best to learn everything I can about certain very, very technical aspects of you know certain ways of setting up databases and uh, you're reading library science textbooks yeah to a degree yeah some of those (laughs) aspects too so like one of the things that i'm kind of interested in is you know so there's like ai like chat gpt and stuff but there's also ways of you know building your own ai models that are suited to very specific tasks and like there's things at the board that i would like to do with some ai i don't want to just shove it in chat gpt it's not trained for the purpose that i need it for and there's some things like forecasting would be one thing that I'd be interested in in using some AI tech in, and some other ones are in in doing some data cleaning work that's like complicated. Where, for example, we have lots of records uh, where there's a lot of text. Uh, somebody writes a description of a property or something like that, but the, those things that you want to understand about the property from the text are not coded in some other field, but you would like them to be, mm-hmm. and short of a human going through and hand doing this, but for millions of records or whatever, right? Like, you need something that can kind of parse this. AI has, you know, risen to the occasion at this point. There's all kinds of models that can do this very efficiently and effectively. So I'm trying to find ways that could do something like that to make better use of certain data, also on the commercial side, because the commercial data is complicated. Uh, A lot of very interesting and important information is contained in the brokerage sheets right like in their in their mm-hmm. advertising documents it doesn't always make it into some database somewhere mm-hmm. uh so that would be very interesting to use that to try to extract better info from that and then do cool things with it so yeah nerding out <laughs> on technical <documentations. laughs> sounds relaxing it, like, falling asleep <laughs> no <right. laughs> no this is this is uh
2: the
3: result of a, a one-year-old up half the night oh so gotcha <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, in the last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? And, and when I say last few years, maybe since you were on last. Yeah, okay. Um, hmm.
4: Something I've been doing that, like I, I've done this before, but it's kind of like you get a New Year's resolution and then you do something for a bit and then it kind of fades off. Well, I've never actually implemented this as a New Year's resolution, but uh, what I just did a few months ago was like, start doing things incrementally. So there's a lot of, I have like millions of little projects that I do, I have, whether it's like renovating something in my house or, I don't know, tinkering with something, building some AI model or whatever. It is. I got like a million things that I want to do like that. But a lot of them are pretty involved. They take like a lot of mental effort to get yourself like mentally wired up to do the hard work of kind of putting something together yeah. like that. A lot of it's like programming work. And so what I started like forcing myself to do was like, just do a little bit every day. Like just find like something easy that you can kind of pick away at on it. Even if it's like, so if you if you don't have that like four hours or whatever to just sink yourself into it, do like 10 minutes or whatever. And just even if it's like the smallest thing, you're like, oh, I just fixed this tiny little piece of code. I changed a comma in a piece of code, whatever. That's 10 minutes done. And it's actually surprising. Like I'm starting to see like kind of real results from this. Like there's the projects I've been working on for years that are actually starting to move again. That I'm like, wow. Hey, it actually kind of works. I got to try that in some other aspects of my life. Yeah, it's like the uh,
2: atomic habits. Uh, how to eat an elephant. Yeah. One bite at a time, I guess. That's yeah. right,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll save uh, how to cook a frog for next week. Yeah, but also, uh, but it does, I feel like that is, we've uh, we've we've talked about it primarily or strangely enough on this show in relation to exercise, right? Like doing something every the day. The habit is uh, putting on your shoes. Yeah, and then it's like, <laughs> You're, you know, you don't fall into those funks where you're like, oh yeah, I haven't done anything for four months or
4: whatever it is. Working out's a good one too. Maybe I'll save that for next podcast. I'll try my incrementalism (laughs) on that. I definitely need to do a bit of (laughs) it.
2: Question number three:
4: What have you been binge watching
2: lately, or a movie recommendation?
4: Uh, yeah, again, YouTube videos (laughs) and technical stuff. Just like immersing myself (laughs) in a lot. I'm just like, I just need to know. I, I, I. So it's kind of funny side story. Uh, I have this old Volkswagen van that I probably shouldn't have because it's just a total money pit and like a waste of time and energy, but it, uh, it's not working. We got a new motor in it and then the new motor is just like not working. And so my dad loves tinkering on these things and he's, he's just like, give me your van and I'll tinker away with it for God knows how. So he's, he's been working on it for like weeks on it and he's just like obsessed. He's trying to figure out what this one really annoying problem is. And I get the same way with like all kinds of like little things that I like if I'm working on and I just like, I will not be able to sleep until my brain like satiates some kind of urge to know some piece of specific information. <laughs> and so I just been like, okay, I'll be like, you know, it's like 10 p.m. My wife goes to bed and I'm like YouTubing, like how to do some very complicated like math thing or something in <laughs> a programming language. And I watch some like weird video of some like, I don't know, a guy from India explaining it to me in like, you know, <laughs> a, in a half an hour lecture or whatever. It puts you to sleep, but then, it, you know, it satisfies my, my uh, intellectual curiosity and I'm able to sleep. So yeah, that's how, <laughs> that's my life in a nutshell, guys. I mean, there's not much more to it. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm
3: sitting here staring at the wall. Favorite <laughs> band or music?
4: Oh, so yeah, we kind of talked about yeah, this last yeah, I was gonna time, say
3: right? you'll have one for this, yeah, well, sure. I
4: used to yeah, I used to like do music and stuff, but I, it's, I'm a weird kind of character in that uh sense that I don't really like have like a super favorite band or anything like that. i just like lots of stuff, and uh what like but what I'd recommend to people who are interested in you know technical playing of guitar, for example, so uh there's a there's a pretty famous record, I think it's from like the 70s or 80. it must be the 80s or something so it's john mclaughlin Paco de lucia and al di miola and these are three like virtuoso guitar players and they did this recording uh in let's go the record's called like live in san francisco on friday night and this is like it's literally a live performance of these three just like epic guitar players and so Paco de lucia is a very flamenco oriented traditional flamenco player al di miola is kind of like this like hybrid jazz flamenco say, he kind of does all kinds of stuff. And then there's other guy, John McLaughlin, who's very like, he was in some very like avant-garde, progressive jazz bands at the time, which you can imagine with all the kind of drugs (laughs) and stuff that are going around. The music's pretty weird. It's like, it's, (laughs) it's cool if you got the stomach for it. Yeah. But this record's incredible because these three guys like sit down at this, you know, live concert and they just, start playing these like really challenging pieces. And, you know, their guitar playing is like still probably, you know, amongst a lot of guitar players, like pros out there, this is some of the best guitar playing you'll probably ever hear in your life. It's like, it's just wild how, you know, fast technical and how like incredible it is to have three people of that skill level come together and play. And unfortunately, uh, Paco de Lucia passed away. If you years ago. And so it's a pretty great loss to that community of, uh, flamenco players and so on. And Al Dimaola, I think recently had a bit of a health scare as well. So, you know, these folks are not getting any younger and, uh, that records going to endure timelessly, I think for quite some time as being a, an amazing piece of, of audio. Wow. Very cool.
2: Last but not least something that you've purchased for under $1,500 that's had a positive
4: impact on your life. Yeah, I was thinking about this one, because it's always hard for me because I don't s I don't spend I don't buy a lot of things. But one thing that I've been I am glad I get to say this to somebody because my wife's sick of hearing me say this. I <laughs> I bought this electric lawnmower and I was super lame. It's just like a dad thing. I'm not even a dad. But like I <laughs> I bought this electric lawnmower and I live in an area that has like lots of leaves that fall on the ground and you got to rake up these leaves all the time. Well, this lawnmower has got this mulching function in it. So I just go out there and I mow these leaves down and it's creating this like amazing mulch for like the yard. And stuff. I mean, I'm like out there mowing the neighbor's lawn and stuff because I'm having so much fun doing this. It's just taking down these leaves. <laughs> I'll be walking down the street with my wife. And there's all these huge leaf piles everywhere. And I'm like, look, see all these suckers? They're all raking it up and I'm just sitting there, you know, mowing these things down. And I was doing this the other day and I had some guys walking down the street and he just starts chatting me. me. He's like, that's a brilliant idea. I'm like, I know. And I got this like 20 minute <laughs> conversation with him. Hilarious. So that's what I highly recommend that or get yourself an electric leaf blower at least so you're not bothering everybody with those gas powered ones. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Well, fantastic, Andrew. How can, uh, and your,
3: the content you're putting out, uh, always look forward to it, but where can people find out? all the
4: reports and videos and everything you're talking about? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. So, uh, rebgv.org, I believe, is the main public website. And we have a little economics tab in there at the moment. And uh, you'll find pretty much everything I'm doing there uh, that's publicly available. Kind of good news is like, I don't want to announce like a Defined date for sure, but I, I am working presently on building a new kind of economics website that's going to have some cool content for members and stuff. There's going to be ways to access data downloads and things that we don't currently provide in very easy to get formats. And wow. uh, I'm going to try to consolidate, you know, the lead videos and the blogs there, hoping to maybe do some more kind of formal economics reports that kind of tackle an issue in a more, you know, traditional economist way, you know, I have the lead video series, which is more of a storytelling, conversational, dynamic thing where I'm trying to just, you know, make data kind of more interesting and and not such a dry topic to people. But Sometimes there's substance that, you know, we want to take a position on as the board and stuff like that and we want something a bit more authoritative than a blog vlog series with me just, you know, rambling about whatever topic I want. <laughs> so, I'm kind of hopeful that I'll be able to build this out in the next year or so and uh, so stay tuned for that. And along with that, I am also hoping to do some some work on the commercial side because we don't have like super, super great commercial statistics, but I've been digging through that data lately. And I think there's some potential there that we can do to augment what we deliver. So stay tuned for all that. I think there's going to be some cool stuff. Maybe we can get you on the Vancouver commercial real estate podcast. Yeah, I actually would love to do that sometimes if I can plug it, but I'm not like a super expert on commercial. But once the data is up and running, I'd be happy to speak to the data and trends and talk about that. It'd be awesome. Right on. Right on. Well, thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for having me back.
3: So there you have, it, folks, our discussion with Andrew Liss, director of economics and data analytics at the REBGV. Really enjoyed that conversation with Andrew Matt, and uh,
2: I got to say, I always have fun when we're when when he come, comes to join us, but also. There's always a slightly different take than yeah. what the kind of the typical narratives are around the market. Like I feel like he goes deep He's and slightly
3: then, off kilter. He's
2: got yeah. a slightly unique vantage point. And like like we said at the beginning of the show, uh the Real Estate Board is so lucky to have Andrew and uh we'll we'll keep banging that drum.
3: Absolutely, but uh two interesting things. One, 2024 much the same. I feel like this Groundhog day thing is is uh, is already getting sick of it. I know it's uh, one way or the other something's gonna yeah something's <laughs> got to give man just <laughs> uh but we need some we need new new things to talk about here. no no kidding no kidding let's change it up and secondly inventory 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 and that might be the big change Yeah. so we'll have to change. we'll have to see what happens there but it's interesting uh that it, basically you watch the inventory and you can and you can see and he's got the numbers right he spells it out pretty pretty specifically sure. there here's what you're looking for and and uh, and here's the result. It's yeah. it's pretty easy.
2: Yeah, that was a great conversation. I should say we've had a couple people reach out about the Jordan McDonald episode. Uh, tons of positive feedback on that episode. If you haven't heard our conversation with Jordan, who is the CEO of Fabric Living. Big, you know, big development company and working in East Vancouver, building like really, really nice. It's love letter to East Van. It, it's a very great conversation. So head back. That's uh, the last episode that we put out. Definitely make sure that you you listen to that one. And thanks everybody for the feedback. I like a little bit of a feedback loop on what. So if you, if you want to either write in on our Spotify or send us an email at the info line or just even give us a call or a text and say hey. This was a great episode more in that direction or whatever you're you're wanting to hear more of we want to hear it. Matt, how can people find out more about what's going on in, in on our
3: site? Well, I was going to say before the site Adam also Instagram. Yes. At Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. That's where we get a lot of messages and uh, and there's oh, a yeah. lot going the on there at all. Yeah. DMs. Slide into the DMs. But other than that, we have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. Head over to com for things like the LiveWire. This is our weekly mailer. Uh, you get stats, different types of stats before anyone else. You get deal of the month. There's basically no reason why you shouldn't be on this list. We also have, of course, tried and true private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing
2: still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips over at Podcast.com. No reason you shouldn't have PCS right now. You get to monitor the market, see what's happening with pricing. And I got to say, there's some deals out there. Mon like look what where are the deals where are the deals they're on PCS yeah. that's where they are and uh, let me just tell you quickly because I got a wrap Matt because I'm a I'm going to Arizona tomorrow and B, am going to get my haircut in about five minutes here oh my god uh, it is busy uh, boombox, boombox barbershop uh, <laughs> I gotta say if you need a good break from uh, from life and you want to watch some sports during the afternoon and get your haircut and they're not paying you to say this no man but it's a nice break in the afternoon little premier league Pretty good. Well,
3: if you want to, <laughs> I've never been so, uh, but anything real estate related, give me a show at seven seven eight eight four seven two eight five four or Matt at Vancouver dot com. And for all your barber recommendations, try me at seven seven
2: eight eight six six four five seven four or Adam at Vancouver Real dot com. And of course, we got that nonpartisan line, Kokomo line, info at Vancouver Real dot com. Well, have a great week, have a great long weekend. All oh, right. And uh, we'll see you uh, next week with another great episode. Take care.
1: Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.